The Reverend Dr. Curry is a United Church of Christ minister in Portland, Oregon, who also serves as the director of the Center for Peace and Spirituality and university chaplain at Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon. Before attending a seminary, Dr. Curry was employed as the director of community outreach at Portland's First United Methodist Church, which included serving as the executive director of the Goose Hollow Family Shelter. He later earned his Master of Divinity degree at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, and his Doctor of Ministry degree at Chicago Theological Seminary. Dr. Curry subsequently pastored at a number of churches in the Portland area, including the Park Rose Community United Church of Christ, which under his tenure voted to become, quote, open and affirming towards gays and lesbians, launched a new joint youth program, and relocated the church with a new focus on mission and outreach in the community. Dr. Curry writes, a personal blog on religion and social issues, which the Los Angeles Times has cited as top-tier editorial writing. He also writes regularly for the Huffington Post on religion and political and social issues. Dr. Curry has appeared on ABC's World News Tonight and been mentioned or quoted in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek, and National Public Radio. He has been a member of the board of the National Coalition for the Homeless. Among many other honors, he has received the Distinguished Service and Leadership Award of the National Association for the Education of Homeless Children and Youth. In 2013, he was invited by the White House to, to join President and Mrs. Obama, along with Vice President Biden and Dr. Biden, at the National Prayer Service held following inaugural at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Please welcome Dr. Chuck Curry. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see all of y'all uh, here. If you still need uh, seats, there are some at the other end of the, of the room, so feel free to come in and walk in front of me. It won't bother, bother me at all. I appreciate very much that you have uh, decided to have me speak in the morning, uh, because as a, uh, as a pastor, I'm only used to really seeing people in the morning, uh, and it doesn't matter what time of uh, day it is, I will generally say good morning to you, even if it's late in the, um, in the evening. Uh, I'd like to thank my colleague, uh, Dr. Don uh, Schweitzer from Pacific, who is in charge of our Master of uh, Social Work uh, program. Uh, I think it was probably Don who uh, arranged for me to be here. Uh, Don is uh, a great advocate on homeless uh, youth issues, another issue that, um, that I care about uh, quite a bit and have uh, worked on in my career. Uh, this year represents, for me, uh, 30 years of working on issues uh, related to homelessness. I'd like to say that with a caveat, however, because I'm not that old. I, um, I started working on issues related to homelessness uh, when I was about 18 uh, years old. 
and I'll tell you how it started for me. When I was a junior in high school, the director of what was then the largest service um, uh, provider in the Portland metro area came to our high school and gave a presentation on homelessness. And at the end of his uh, presentation, he asked if anybody would be willing to volunteer at the shelter. And I, being someone interested as a high school student in social issues, raised my hand and said that I would be happy to volunteer. A year went by and the director of that same agency came back uh, to our high school. And he uh, gave a very similar presentation as the one that he had given before, but noted that homelessness had increased in Portland and in the United States in the last year, and asked the students if they wanted to know why that had happened. And of course, everyone nods their head yes. And he pointed me out of the audience and said, because people like that don't keep their commitment to help. I had never gone to the shelter to volunteer. So I went that Saturday <laughs> and stayed for 30 years um, uh, working on, uh, on these issues. When we talk about ending homelessness, a lot of people, um, as uh, Yvonne said at the beginning, um, offer the idea that it is impossible to end homelessness um, in our country. And that's something that I strongly and profoundly disagree with myself. In part because I am old enough to remember a time, as some of you will be as well, when we did not have the kind of national homeless crisis that we have today. When there were not the large number of homeless men living on our streets, when we did not have the large number of people who were suffering from mental illness living on our streets, and certainly when we did not have the large number of homeless families and children who are living on our streets. Our homelessness crisis, as you will remember, began in the 1980s, when the federal government began a dramatic cutback in federal assistance, starting with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, which during the period between 1981 and uh, 1993 had their budget cut 75% to create uh, public affordable housing for people uh, in the United States. And as those deep cuts uh, began to filter down to local communities, we first saw an influx of homeless single adults on our streets, uh, which was uh, dramatic enough, many of them veterans of our war. Uh, we saw the closure of mental health facilities all across our country. The first shelter that I worked at in Portland was called Baloney Joe's, um, named after a a uh, minister named Reverend Joe Yeager, who used to walk around the streets of Portland handing out bologna sandwiches to those uh, who were homeless. And as our state hospital began to close down, every other Monday, an entire school bus load of people who were suffering from chronic mental illness were dropped off at our shelter, even though we had no beds for them. And they would simply wander off into uh, the streets. And then we began to see um, closures of other social service programs as well, coupled with the growing cost of housing in our communities. Now, probably nowhere in um, America, uh, but the Bay Area has seen anything um, as close to what we have seen in Portland in terms of housing prices, which in many of our neighborhoods in Portland have risen 75 to 80% over the last 20 years. 
And as all of you know, wages have certainly not increased uh, 75 to 80 percent to keep up with the high cost of housing. So by the beginning of the um, 1990s, the homeless situation changed dramatically in our community, changed dramatically in the United States as a whole, and we began to see large numbers of families who were coming into our shelters. I can still remember very well the first time we had an entire intact family show up at Bologna Joe's uh, in the late uh, 1980s and how shocking that was to all of us. But now in the Portland Multnomah County area, the vast majority of people who are homeless are families and women with children. And that's a statistic that holds true for many communities all across our country. In response to that, I helped start the Goose Hollow Family Shelter in Portland, which became the first uh, shelter for homeless families in the Portland area during the um, early 1990s. Uh, for many years, the faith community provided 100% of the shelter beds uh, for homeless families uh, in Portland. And that is not unusual in country or in counties uh, and cities all across our country. The faith community provides um, and plays a uh, profound role uh, in the delivery of services uh, for those who are homeless um, in low income. But that work is oftentimes not recognized or coordinated with other um, organizations or programs. Let me give you an example of that. When President uh, George W. Bush was first elected um, in uh, 2000, or appointed by the Supreme Court. I'm not sure how you want to uh, determine. But when, when President Bush took office in, um, in 2000, uh, he proposed starting uh, what was uh, called the Office of um, Faith-Based Initiatives uh, in the White House. For many of my colleagues on the board of the National Coalition for the Homeless, where I, I served at the time, it was a, um, a challenge for them to wrap their heads around the idea that as secular service providers, they should be working with faith-based organizations, um, that they felt that there should be a line drawn uh, between the two. When in reality, uh, our faith-based organizations are providing so many important services, there ought to be as much coordination in the delivery of services and in the advocacy um, and promotion of services um, as possible. Now, having said that, I opposed the creation of the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives um, at the White House during the Bush administration for a couple of important reasons. One, it was a grant-making office that gave grants directly to faith-based organizations without the same accountability and standards that were required of other nonprofits that were applying for funds. Um, so you understand what that means. They, they didn't have to have the same credentialed uh, staff providing uh, services. Uh, they didn't have to have the same uh, reporting requirements um, or financial requirements that, that every other nonprofit had. And my belief has always been that if you're going to be 
a faith-based provider, your, your services ought to be secular to the people who, that you are serving um, and welcoming of all people of all faith backgrounds, regardless of where you come from. And you ought to have the same high level of professionalism uh, that every other nonprofit has. And that you ought to compete for funds with other nonprofits and not have a special pool of funds made available to the faith community. But this is not what the Bush administration uh, argued for when they came into office. Nonetheless, they set up their, their office, which was an um, unmitigated disaster. And by the end of the uh, Bush administration, the Inspector General report uh, that looked at the office found that most of the grants that had been made had been made to people who had been politically supportive of the president um, and not qualified to deliver services. So a lot of the money was then wasted. But as President uh, Bush was uh, beginning to end his term, which um, as you will remember saw a steep increase in homelessness, after we had actually seen a decline in homelessness at the end of the 1990s and a decline in poverty in the 1990s uh, during the Clinton administration. Uh, that flipped during the, the Bush administration. And by the time he left office, of course, the Great Recession began and the explosion of poverty that we still see today that we have not seen since the Great Depression uh, began to, to, to mushroom in our country. But as he was getting ready to leave office, a uh, young senator from uh, the state of Illinois uh, called my office um, and said that he was interested in working on the issue of homeless veterans. And would I be able to help um, on that? And I said, uh, Senator Obama, I would be happy uh, to help you work on a bill to address um, homeless veterans. Uh, and then Senator Obama's office called back and said, we're going to run for president now, um, and we would, um, we would like some additional help. And part of that is a reform of the White House Office of Faith-Based uh, Initiatives uh, to make it work, because President Obama himself was a person of deep faith, uh, a member, in fact, of my denomination, uh, the United Church of Christ. And so I worked with his office uh, with a large number of people to recreate um, uh, what is now called the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. We took out the grant-making piece of that office so that it no longer gave money and instead used that office to provide technical assistance uh, to faith-based organizations regardless of uh, faith background. So it was not all Christian evangelical, which it was for the most part during the Bush administration, but we reached out to the Muslim community, the Jewish community, the Sikh community, uh, Native American communities um, to try and help them learn how to uh, better prepare and deliver their services um, and to apply for federal grants uh, that would in fact be helpful. And at the same time, used um, that office as a center for advocacy and communication between the faith-based community and the White House uh, to look at other broader issues related to poverty in our country and healthcare in our country. And it was through that office, for example, that we did an enormous amount of advocacy 
um, to help get the Affordable Health Care um, Act passed. And I was very proud to be able to join President Obama um, at the White House uh, to celebrate uh, when the first open enrollment period uh, ended uh, and over 30 million people were able to obtain um, health care. One of the greatest moral victories in this country um, over the last uh, generation. And so for me, like you, I would assume it is depressing uh, to see that work uh, being undone in Washington, D.C. right now. President Obama also did some other important things. We, we look at the large number of people who are living in poverty in this time, and it is very depressing. But it's important to remember that as the president took office, the economy was in a free fall. The president was able, without any Republican support, um, this is not a partisan speech, by the way, I'm just offering facts, um, without any Republican support to pass uh, the Recovery Act, uh, which really saved the United States from completely falling off the economic cliff. And the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities notes that that one bill also kept over 30 million people from falling into poverty, meaning that the situation we face today would be even worse if it had not been for President Obama's intervention. And the Affordable Health Care Act by itself has kept another 10 million people out of poverty. And as we see these great accomplishments undone, um, at a time where we do see growing um, employment, which is a result, again, of the Recovery Act, which could have been stronger if the President's American Job Act had been passed by Congress, um, we are, we're turning back. We're turning back, and, um, and for me, it is frustrating. For, for you, it is frustrating. One of the things that most of our cities and counties, other jurisdictions have done since the Bush administration have put together what are called 10-year plans to end homelessness. Do you all have a 10-year plan to end homelessness or did you have one at one point? Did homelessness end after the 10-year plan was over? No, it didn't end in my community either. I've lived through three 10-year plans to end homelessness now. Um, we had one in Portland in uh, 1980. Uh, that did not end homelessness in 1990. In 1987, we adopted a 12-point plan to end homelessness in the Portland area. Homelessness did not end when the 12 points uh, were implemented. We adopted another 10-year uh, plan when uh, the Bush administration was in office. Uh, and of course, we had more homeless people on the streets uh, than ever before. The reason that I mention this is that I think that it has helped build a giant disconnect between the American people and our cause. Every time we launch a plan that says that we are going to end homelessness that is not realistically going to end homelessness, Americans become jaded. They see us investing money in job creation, they see us investing money in affordable housing, in mental health care, but homelessness continues to grow. And the reason for that primarily is that we're not investing the resources that we actually need. And the resources that we need are, are fairly are, are huge. But every time we tell people we're going to end homelessness and we don't end homelessness, they say, why should we spend any more money on this issue? Why continue to invest in affordable housing? Why continue to invest in healthcare and job creation? 
Uh, and so we need to be careful about the words that we use, the rhetoric that we use um, as we work to address these issues and to be realistic with the people of this country and provide them with goals that are manageable and that can be met. Um, we are not going to end homelessness in the United States of America anytime soon, certainly under the policies that are, um, are in, in place today. What can we do in America today? If we had good pub public policy makers um, in office at the national and state level, well, the Center for American Progress has put together an excellent plan where we could, at the very least, reduce poverty by 50% over the next 10 years. If we were to invest in uh, childcare credits and in education and in housing and in healthcare, these are doable steps that the United States could take with the budget situation that we have today. Now that would not solve us of the problem that we, we have right now or the seriousness of the problem that we have right now, but it would allow us to make a profound difference in the lives of Americans and show the public that homeless service providers and advocates can actually reach many of the goals that we have said that we can in fact reach. One of the things that I would urge all of you um, to do uh, in your work, going back to an earlier point, is to make sure that you do work and network uh, with the faith community as much as possible. And it sounds like, to me, this organization has already done that. Uh, two of the people who have um, spoken already this morning, one is a Sunday school teacher and the other uh, works with the Unitarian Church and the Methodist Church in this area is co-sponsoring uh, this uh, gathering. And so I think that's important. But I would urge you to take it a little bit uh, further if you haven't already. One of the things that we've now been able to do in Multnomah County, which is the Portland area, is establish a faith-based um, office uh, modeled on what we did in the Obama administration. Uh, so that we have staff at the county level, which works on human services and corrections issues, who are able to network with the faith community to get them involved and to help increase their participation in the issues um, that we all care about. This is something that can happen at every county level, every city level, and at every state level. Uh, but too many of our politicians, particularly Democrats, are afraid to become involved um, in faith-based work. And so I would urge you all to advocate for this because the more that we can bring faith-based service providers into the arena, the better off um, we are all going to be because we can actually make a, uh, a pretty profound uh, difference in this work. For me, um, all the work that I do um, is influenced in, in some way by my faith. Uh, and my work as a minister in the United Church of Christ. There is a passage in the Hebrew scriptures uh, that I share with people often, and perhaps it's one that you have heard before from the book of Isaiah that gives us a roadmap for making our world a better place. And it's fairly simple. It says, if you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil... If you offer food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places. Uh, 
and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. And isn't that essentially the work that we are all trying to do? To restore the streets in which we live in, to rise up the foundations of this country that have crumbled over the last couple of generations so that nobody has to live on the street, so that no child has to live on the street. Despite all the work that we have done in the Portland area over the last 30 years, we had five people freeze to death this winter during a 10-day ice storm that we had. And this has been happening all over the country this year as we have seen the explosion of people who are living on our streets. And that includes children who have died on our streets, including in Portland, a baby who froze to death um, this winter. That is not the world that we want. But it is incredibly difficult to maintain any sense of hope Isn't that true in the times in which we live? If you're like me at all, you wake up, you uh, turn on the news, turn on your computer, read the newspaper, and it's all incredibly depressing news, particularly when you look at the president's uh, release budget and you look at the investments that he wants to make on housing and homelessness services. And by investments, I mean dramatic cuts. Or when you listen to our new HUD secretary, Ben Carson, who has been going around and visiting public housing, subsidized housing, and his question is not, do we have enough housing, but are we making housing too comfortable for people to live in? That's, that's, depressing, that's depressing talk from our, our federal leaders. There was a time in my life where I thought of myself as being an optimistic person. After 30 years, I'm no longer an optimistic person. I think great things can be done in our country and in the world, and I've seen them happen and been moved by them um, in a way that makes me continue to work on these issues in, in one level or another. I was astounded as a young person um, in 1989 as uh, perhaps uh, some of you were, uh, when people from East Germany and West Germany together tore down the Berlin Wall, when the Cold War ended without a real war, when people just like those of us in this room today literally tore down that wall together. And that same year, I was incredibly astounded after so much time to see Nelson Mandela walk out of of prison to become the president of a multiracial democracy. Now, since then, things have not been easy. New problems have arisen. Not everything was solved by the end of the Cold War in South Africa itself continues to have many problems. So I'm not left optimistic about these things, but I do hold on to hope. I had an opportunity when I was uh, a freshman at Pacific University. Not only do I work at Pacific University, I was actually a student at Pacific University until they kicked me out. I'm the only faculty member on staff who was actually kicked out of Pacific University. But that's a whole, that's a whole other story. Uh, But when I was a student there, William Sloan Coffin came to visit. And some of you from um, 
uh, uh, who have been around for a while will remember William Sloan Coffin. He was the uh, very famous uh, chaplain at Yale University uh, during the Civil Rights era, and then later the pastor of Riverside Church um, in New York. And I had the chance to meet him as a freshman and spend a week with him when he was on campus and, um, and talk to him even then about my interest in going into ministry. And then in 2004, about a year before he died, I had the opportunity to work with him on a project to try and bring a religious voice, a progressive religious voice, into the 2004 elections. William Sloan Coffin said this about hope versus optimism. He said, hope is a state of the mind independent of the state of the world. If your heart's full of hope, you can be persistent even when you can't be optimistic. You can keep the faith despite the evidence, knowing that only in doing so has the evidence any chance of changing. So while I'm not optimistic, I'm always very hopeful. And that's the work that we find ourselves involved with today, trying to change the evidence of our time. And if you don't think that's possible, I say look back to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Look back to that day that Nelson Mandela walked out of prison to become a president. Look back to the day that the United States of America for the first time elected an African-American president of the United States of America after a time of slavery and Jim Crow. There is a lot of work that can be done, but I am still hopeful. Thank you all so much for the work that you all do and for having me here today. I appreciate it.